Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. How can creative strategy, curiosity, and courage drive brand success in today's marketing landscape? In episode 40 of The B-Side, I speak with Catherine King, Chief Strategy Officer at Leo Burnett, Australia. With over two decades of industry experience, Catherine's journey is remarkable. From her Western Sydney roots, influenced by a Taiwanese mother and a Scottish father, to her diverse career spanning journalism, startups and advertising. We explore Catherine's fascinating career, from securing venture capital funding during a dot-com era, to advising the World Bank and even trying her hand as a chef. We dive into her deep and diverse insights and her emphasis on, you know, really resonating with customers' needs, desires and beliefs. She highlights the need for strategy to complement creativity, so we enhance that creative freedom. And we jam on how we should balance complexity and simplicity in advertising and the value of team collaboration in creating memorable campaigns. This is a cracking episode, a deep dive into the mind and the life influences of a truly remarkable strategic leader. I hope you find it as inspiring as I did. Cheers. We are recording. I'm in the Leo's building again. I mean, people must always think, this guy, what is he doing down there? He's always over it. Can't stay away. Can't, no, but um, it's a wonderful building. And I'm with Catherine King here, who's the head of strategy at Leo Burnett. We're both, well, I'm a Leo Burnett alum, which I've spoken about before on the podcast, but you are quite new and recent to the Leo's fam. Yeah, um, it'll be two years in November. Two years. By advertising standards, two years is like you're a long-termer. I feel like the furniture now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm I'm being unfair. Maybe it's a bit longer. I wonder what the stats are. You'd know this as the head of – well, you might know this as the head of strategy. But, um, yeah, it's the tenure in advertising is quite short, I think. I'm not sure if it's still the same, but in my mind um, it was always two or three years maybe. The yeah, standard, yeah, the I think it depends where you are. Yeah, like um, I've cl- I've spent a lot of time in indies and startups. Yeah, and I think there's a range, but at Leo's the average is four to five years. Four to five years. That's so the great. tenure is actually quite long, which is something that attracted me to the agency was that kind of consistency in the tenure. I thought there has to be something in the culture. Mm. Well, I keep and part of the, I'm not joking when I say Leo's did have a massive effect on me, and there is something in the culture, and it's something that has. Uh, remained with me and I guess has shaped a lot of my philosophy towards mm. uh, advertising and I could be looking back on things with road Gulls glasses no doubt but I did bring in my little book of Leo's and you can see over there on the desk the hundred yeah. little book of Leo's it's like which a, I promise I won't try and steal I know you did, I you did you, you, you've been eyeing it the whole time and we did totally. go through it earlier and for my listeners I'm it's a wonderful little book I'll just describe it it's got a bunch of red apples on the cover and it's called a hundred this is theatre of the mind, people. A hundred Leos, wit and wisdom from Leo Burnett. Now, I'm not going <laughs> to bore you with quotes from the late and great Leo Burnett. Why don't we talk more about you? Where are you from? What do you do? And why are you awesome? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's, I'm sure, a trick question. Um, my background. So I grew up in Western Sydney. 
um, think Guildford, Maryland, Parramatta. Went to sc- the same school as the Ibrahim Brothers, which was an interesting Okay, experience. the podcast is going to – we're going to stop talking about advertising now, people, <laughs> if you don't mind. We're going to start talking about Sydney's underworld. and <laughs> Totally. Um, <laughs> that, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's yeah, – that's, and it, do you, when you say that, that, that is a really good way of – Yeah, I'm orienting. Orienting, yeah. yeah. And, and it was a kind of high school where at the beginning of year 12, they took us all aside and there was an, an assembly – and they said, uh, the vast majority of you will get under 15 in your final grade. So if there's any of you who aren't serious, please leave now and give the rest of them a chance. It was it was that kind of place. Wow. Yeah. And so within that kind of environment, um, my dad is Scottish mm-hmm. and uh, he's the black sheep of the family. And he grew up in Edinburgh, academic, um, comes from, you know, my, my that side of the family is super academic, but he became a scaffolder. Um, left school early, even though he, he was skipping grades, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and studied kung fu in Japan in Okinawa for over ten years. Wow! And uh, so we were subject to a lot of Jackie Chan movies growing <laughs> up. Um, and then he met Mum because he went on a trip to Taiwan, and her family were there because they escaped the Cultural Revolution in Northern China, and so. Um, she, uh, my grandfather was in the military, they escaped to Taiwan and within a matter of years they went from being a very affluent family to living in complete poverty due to, you know, a range of unforeseen circumstances. And so um, my parents met, they couldn't even speak the same language so they kind of relied on letter-writing wow. interpreters to wow. kind of communicate yeah. between them. But I think... They've experienced some really heavy things in life and um, decided to settle in Sydney, I think, because it felt like a fresh start. I grew up with a sense of, like, you've got to just make things happen. Um, You've got to make the most of it. And so there were always a lot of ideas, a lot. They started businesses, they supported businesses. And then on the flip side, they were also really generous. So, you know, we housed refugees and helped them out. Um, my mum worked with people with Down syndrome, they were foster parents. And so if I'm painting quite a chaotic picture, that's probably, um, probably true. Um, and I was this bookish kind of nerd within it all observing. (laughs) And that's really, there's so much to unpack in that, but I want to stick with how that impacted your move into strategy was it that i'm just going to ask you maybe a a somewhat loaded question but was it that need for order in amongst um not chaos in a negative sense but flux from cultural perspectives from communication perspectives from societal expectations you know there are all these things that have been thrown in this soup and you've got to try and figure out the the ingredients of it to formalize your own way forward. I think you're completely right. I think that is part of it. Um, I think creating order definitely, but also observing people. I really liked doing that as a child because I came across so many, so many different types of people. And I saw so many different types of stories. And also, you know, given my parents come from such different cultures, there was no common culture. There was, felt like there was barely a common language at times. Yeah. And so I played a diplomatic role from a very early, um, you know, I was the mm. oldest child. So mm. I'd often say to dad, oh, no, no, mum didn't mean that. You know, like um, when she says that, she actually means this and I'd yeah. do the same. And so I think looking at brands, 
I do like to make order, but I also think there can be a lot of power when you look for the common ground. Common ground, yeah. Yeah. That is incredibly powerful. I mean, finding those connection points between people broadly yeah. is what we do, right? That's, that's exactly that's right. Yeah. And so having experienced a lot of that as a child, it's a space that I feel really comfortable with within. Mm. And I also, like when you look at the composition of what I grew up with, it it wasn't mainstream. Like we, no. we were on the edges. Yeah. But I saw that there was so much good that happened at the edges of culture. Yeah. Because um, it was definitely a space that we inhabited. So I think it's probably a mix of all of those things. Yeah. Isn't that mm. fascinating? So was it the expectations that you would fail because you were from that area and that school? Because there's, the, what was it about that? And did that did that expectation give you this burning passion to prove people wrong? There was no expectation with school, yeah. zero expectation. And so it wasn't the kind of place where they were gearing you up because you were going to have a great career. Mm. It wasn't that. I ended up finding folks who were similar to me. So it might have been like my maths tutor at the time. And so – or um, – a good friend of mine is Antoinette Latouf, who's a renowned um, journalist and author. But, you know, we went to the same school and I remember we would kind of climb trees in Parramatta Park and think of how we're going to get out of this yeah. area and how we're going to make something of ourselves. And so it it definitely wasn't the place where, yeah. you know, you were being trained or um, told to, to stand up in certain ways. I look at my children now and I look at the environments that they're in and they're completely different. Like I didn't grow up thinking that people should hear my voice or my opinion mm. yeah. or that I should have a platform or a stage to talk about things or, you know, it, it wasn't, that wasn't a given. And so you need to really kind of teach yourself or, or learn quickly if you want to kind of inhabit different roles. To, sure. to step up and do it because there's no role model. <laughs> yeah. I guess when did you feel that you wanted to move into a career in advertising and did you feel you had a place in that vision? My path isn't a linear path. Yeah. Um, like my first job was a dot-com. Oh, right. And mm. I think um, I can make sense of it now knowing the environment that I grew up in. I grew up doing multiple things because it was like, I've got to, if you, if you want to try and make it, I don't have connections to draw upon. <sighs> There's no kind of easy way in. I mm. knew I had to outsmart or outwork wh whoever I was up against yeah. to kind of get ahead. Would you call that street smarts or would you just call that just the nature of having to I think it's nature. make your own mm. luck? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so... Um, I was uh, with a friend and we had an ID for a portal um, because portals were really big in the dot-com craze. And we we met and we found our way to some VC investors and we pitched our ID and we got funding for it. Um, the, the VC fund was one of the first in Australia to look after kind of, you know, dot-com businesses. And the funding was matched by the government. So I was 19 in one of Australia's first incubators out in the suburbs of Artarman um, because that's where they were set up and got to meet and learn from some incredible people. But as we know, the dot-com crash happened, so we all utterly failed. You know, I had to, like, lay off people that we had hired, wow. which was heartbreaking. Oh, my God, and, especially at that age as oh, well. Oh, I yeah. felt... 
I felt personally responsible for yeah. the dot-com crash. Like I was, oh, really? I was gutted that yeah. I'd let my investors down and wasted their money. And But they taught me they had, had such a different view on failure. They didn't they took the sting out of it where it didn't mm. hurt and it was all around how you made meaning of it and how you made good on it. So I ended up working with my investors after um, after the dot-com crash. And where was that? Sorry. Um, that was, uh, they're called Divergent Capital now, um, but they were called like Blue Fire Innovation back in the day. Um, and then I worked for them for, for some time and then I just felt the urge to kind of get into our industry. But I started off in PR um, so I started, I guess, in an unusual kind of place. Um, uh, but it's something that I really like now in advertising is the fact that I've worked in earned, I've worked in promotions, I've worked um, in digital and social, like I ran a digital social agency for a while. So I kind of come into it with these different facets. Um, and I think that makes for a better integrated thinker that can look at an idea and not assign it a shape as soon as it comes to mind. It is very diverse, your experience from yeah. startups to, mm. you know, digital agencies to not-for-profits to, yeah. and we can talk about all of these, but whilst we're on this topic of those influences and your background, what was the thread, do you think, that maybe pulled all of these roles you played? Yeah, I I think it's an incredible opportunity for growth where I look at it and I'm like, oh, that that feels like yeah, that yeah. feels like a good challenge. Good challenge. Yeah. Can you define two things? What's the opportunity and how do you recognize it? And what is the challenge and why do you find it so rewarding to go after it? Well, I guess potentially I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I haven't had a path of I want to get to this role. Like I yeah. didn't I didn't think from that age, oh, I want to be chief strategy officer at Leah Burnett. Like that, sure. that yeah. wasn't a consideration. Yeah. Um, but I think with every decision, it's like, do I think this is the best decision that I can make given what I've got? Or do I need to push for more? Or do yeah. I need to look further? One thing that guides me is I continuously want to get better. I'm yeah. very curious, um, which can make me, I reckon, intolerable at times. So it sounds like your dad having studied an Eastern art yeah. in Okinawa mm -hmm. and dedicating 10 years, did yeah, you say, to it. He must right. have been quite culturally awakened or receptive, would you say? Or did he just like kicking people's ass? I reckon it's the latter. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's Scottish. Um, he was raised Catholic. I think, I think there was tension between wanting to be enlightened mm. and then also, you know being a bloke who's a scaffolder and likes yeah. drinking Guinness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that background is really, 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 really fascinating, I think. And it's given you this wealth of experience and connections and perspectives to draw upon. I mean, it's a gift really, isn't it? Yeah, I'm starting to think of it like that now. I think <laughs> there was a time when I was like, damn it. I can see how it also influences me as a strategist. Mm. You know, even in my own process, you know, I, I definitely look and read and get a lot of inspiration from very broad sources. Mm. But I'm not a framework thinker. I think you need to know the yeah. fundamentals. Um, and I was really lucky to have worked with some greats in our industry to learn what those fundamentals are. But I think the real, the real, um, the real beauty comes when you know what to break yeah. and where to rebel and where to look, where to push it, where to look yeah. for a different space. And so I think, yeah, it, I don't think it's a tick box 
exercise. It's really a problem-solving exercise. I think there's so many facets of being a strategist that make it an incredibly rewarding experience because you're problem solving for a business, for a brand. Um, You're also needing to connect it with creativity and with the creative process and how it guides and leads and directs that and then how you measure the success of it. We'll come back to frameworks, but how does the strategic process differ when it's your own business, let's say in a startup environment where your strategy is beyond the comms per se, the outputs? I, I don't see that line as strongly as what I used to Mm. um, because clients are at different places and they have different levels of sophistication within their own businesses. I think one of the things I really enjoy about the strategy at Leo's is that it's more commercially aligned than brand aligned because then you understand whether the brand objectives you have are the right ones according to the commercial objectives Mm -hmm. that the business has. And then there are some strategic processes that are very brand oriented. So they're all circle in on the brand and then there's ones that are very people-centered so you have that's where all your design thinking or your human-centered design stuff comes to the fore and you know you spoke of leoisms a core leoism is what helps people helps business and so we really look for the brand opportunity by fulfilling a need in people Um, what's what's a need that they have that is currently underserved and then where the brand can come to play so it's really meshing the kind of commercial with the brand with the the human that I think makes it a really satisfying and and I think quite a unique way of looking at at strategy I love that and it's interesting isn't it you talked about design thinking and human-centered design and if I mentioned those words maybe 10 years ago in the advertising industry people to think mm. I was working in a tech startup yeah for example I love how some of these concepts like design thinking and human-centered design and putting people first are taking on far more relevance now because that's where it all stems from and part of the reason why it's not so much about the brand it's about what's the overarching need that we are fulfilling yeah, that's right. through our brand yeah. for the people. What's the job to be done? What's one thing people don't know about you? You've shared quite a lot uh, in terms of your background and yeah. how diverse that is. Mum's Taiwanese, dad's Scottish. They didn't speak the same language no. for a while. You were the translator, came from Western Sydney, School yeah. of Hard Knocks. Um, People didn't think you'd go on to be anything um, of worth, but you proved them all wrong. Um, I love this story. But what's something amongst all of that, which is already incredibly interesting? Um, Okay. Well, I guess um, I did leave advertising for a little while. Um, I went through a really cliche midlife crisis um, where I left advertising. I got divorced. I kind of wanted to strip away everything that I felt wasn't right or wasn't serving me anymore. Um, I think, I don't know, I I potentially had just defaulted to things that I thought I should do. Um, Anyway, so I I took time out and um, within that time I was was really open to exploring different things and I became a chef um, for around six months. I was a chef at Fred's. So it's, for those who don't know, it's it's one of the best restaurants in Sydney. It's a hatted restaurant. But I had come across the sous chef who's now the head chef um, and 
Um, and we started talking and I literally just had a flyaway kind of joking comment of like, hey, if you ever want someone to come in and peel carrots and take out the trash, then I'm your gal. And he was like, well, we actually do this program where you can come in and work in the kitchen for free for, you know, three to five days. Um, would you like to do that? And I just jumped on the opportunity. I said, if you organise it, I will turn up. Fantastic. And so yeah. I went from kind of like starting and leading the Thinkable Sydney office to being the, the commie chef. So I, I did the three days um, and Danielle Alvarez, the founder, she took me aside and said, oh, look, I wasn't expecting to do this, but I've been looking at the way you think ahead with the team and the way that you're interacting with them and wanted to know if you'd like to work here. And and so I worked there for six months. I specialised in bread, so I made the bread for the restaurant and I absolutely loved it, but I wanted to also learn how people come together in those environments to create creative perfection day after day in that kind of pressure. So I learned a lot that I think I could apply then back to advertising, which I think is another theme. Like I, I think we get too insular in our industry and there's so much to learn about different mental models or the different ways that people do things that then can make what we do stronger and richer. Those mental models you talk about, yeah, because we deal in deal with creativity in a very particular vertical, don't we? Yeah. And it's the ad or it's the, right. the, the, the communications platform, it's the design or it's the video, it's that thing. Yeah. You speak to a chef, a, a pastry chef or a baker, and they've That's got right. this creativity that they have to replicate mm -hmm. every time in a very high-pressure environment, you know? Well, they, I noticed there were different different streams so mm. there was a time to be creative and there was a time when you have to be ruthlessly efficient yeah, yeah. so service is a time to be ruthlessly efficient yeah and it's a time when there is extreme transparency and feedback loops in that environment because if one person falls you all fall and so yeah it it there were different times for different things and I think people kind of intuitively knew that and they knew when to suggest an idea and when you literally just need to follow an order it's very much people-centred and I know you have worked in the not-for-profit not sector. Mm. And talk to me about the work you did for the World Bank because I'm hearing drones helping impoverished communities. Mm -hmm. I was leading a social and digital agency and I realised that lots of the problems that we were coming across didn't neatly fit into the categories that we assigned them to. I started a consultancy called The Romantics and I was invited onto a project um, which was a drone project in East Africa. So basically it's a really rugged um, rural place that's hard to get infrastructure into. So roads, um, shipping, the like, it's difficult. And mm. it means that you have a population of around 33 million who are really disconnected sure. from things. Yeah. And so... Um, I was part of an incredible team with the World Bank. We were working to encourage a different type of infrastructure, so drone infrastructure within East Africa to, to really get um, not just, you know, public health and medical supplies into these areas, but also to spark e-commerce or sure, to spark yeah. commercial opportunities that can um, really benefit the community. So it was an urban resilience project. What is the romantics? So the romantics, I guess, was an experiment that I started. It was a consultancy. 
um, I was really inspired by the people of the Renaissance. You know, think of your da Vinci's who had these multifaceted working lives. They weren't just an artist, they were also an engineer. And they used areas and thinking from one part of life to cross-pollinate into another path. And the whole proposition, the whole promise was breakthrough thinking because of that. You know, the cross-pollination of these unexpected routes led to different ways into to hard problems. And so I could see that problems almost felt like they were wicked. They didn't fit neatly into one silo of business. I assembled a group of people. There were about 35 of us. And um, honestly, I would say the highlight of my career has been the romantics or one of the highlights. But we had world-leading economists, we had artists, we had anthropologists, we had people who had started machine learning businesses or innovation labs, we had um, like venture and impact investors. There was such a broad range of people, but we were united in a very humble curiosity on how could we bring the different mental models and ways that we think forward and together to look for new ways into hard problems. And we had a way of doing things. So we realised the romantic way of doing things isn't over a boardroom table. It was over dinner. It was over it was over food and, and beverages. And so it sparked such interesting, interesting um, ways into problems that I'd not come across before. Well, it goes back to another one of the 100 Leo Burnett quotes in 100 Leo's. Um, and he says, let's gear our advertising to sell goods, but let's recognise also that advertising has a broad social responsibility. Yeah. It seems like you're the perfect person for Leo Burnett in your role because mm. you're living and breathing that through your acts, mm. both past and present. How do you retain a lot of that in what is now a far more corporate-based um, environment. You're working on some massive brands, some yeah. of the biggest brands in Australia, some of the biggest brands in the world. Yeah. Come to Leo's. How do you maintain that focus on doing what is right for people and that social responsibility? I think lots of our clients are interested in that question as well. And so we wanted to unpack almost like the anatomy of how a brand can be good. Yeah, so we created this study and, and the results have been really helpful for clients in knowing that it's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to doing good um, in, in the world and, and for social impact. It's actually, it's it's nuanced according to the target audience that you have and, and actually financial good. So like paying people well and paying your taxes and not being corrupt is actually more important to people these days than, you know... Um, a CSR initiative or a, a flash in the pan campaign. It's almost like table stakes at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. It really is crucial and incumbent on brands to ensure that the way they deliver their products to market to service those needs of their consumers is done in such a way that doesn't create a negative in the yeah. process and, and identifying both the positives from a, you know, undeniable fact that we need commercially successful, profitable businesses. But the idea that you could do that only by creating negatives or not recognising thats right that a far better way of delivering those products is to identify those negatives and r- minimise them. I, why not do that? It's such a beautiful, 
beautiful challenge and, and something to aspire towards as a business leader, right? Totally. But there's tension involved. To your point, we have been told that those those kind of ideas are mutually exclusive. Yeah. You know, being profitable and being responsible, which, Why? which yeah, is Why? It's just crazy. weird. It's a paradigm of this um, old school model where it was yeah. – it just it's, – it's dumb. It's dumb capitalism, you know. It's, it, it is. But yeah. then you, you can have brands that jump onto causes because they want to – appeal to a sure. certain target yeah, the audience. greenwashing sort of thing. Absolutely, using it, yeah. or whatever it is. And that's not the right way to do it either because there's example after example of a brand whose um, behaviour doesn't reflect the way that they communicate. And and I think, I think people are becoming increasingly wiser to that. Yeah, okay, I'll go back to another Little Leo's quote. Excellent. Good advertising does not just circulate information, it penetrates the public mind with desires and belief. Mm. And I guess the question would be, how do you ensure that your advertising strategies not only inform, but resonate with people and trigger that belief? Mm. You know, because we're talking about authenticity here, yeah. and, and we can only do so much, but mm. we need to base our advertising on mm. core truths. Absolutely. How much influence, I guess, can you have? That was a long question. I'm sorry. It was so long. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on the relationship you have yeah. with the client yeah, and yeah, how much yeah. trust they mm. have in you and and how they look to you for guidance on certain mm. things. I do think there are some clients where they would think that's not your remit. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. just, sell, so just sell my just body do this, thing. Exactly. Yeah. Just mm. do this role for me. And, you know, I think there are some brands where that's what their role should be. Yeah, they sure. don't need sure. a higher no, purpose. Right. They yeah. can sell a great product at a great pl- price and tick, well done. Um, but I, I do think we, we can have an enormous influence on the work. Yeah. I mean, we talk about things like One House a lot, um, but I think it's a great example where we were able to partner with a client on on work that actually influenced the business and the products they created, not just the advertising. And I think that's lots of the potential of, of the core skill of what we can do. Because if you think about it, we take um, insight and an understanding of human behaviour and how to motivate that behaviour. And then we apply incredible creativity to it and that's a skill that lots of businesses need across a wide range of problems, not just ones applicable to communications. So communications, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so the modalities are such that we're talking about brand experiences now. That's right. Really, so the product itself becomes a brand experience. Yeah. And yeah, it might be fast fashion or it might be a pair of thongs, but yeah. is it right for a brand to to play on these motivations to buy something at such a cheap price point? Whose responsibility is it for the materials that that thing is made of? Yeah, is it the consumer? Is well, it, I this mean, is, this is more of a thought experiment, philosophical no, no, discussion I think, point. But, you know. I think this is this is the thing, though, because mm. um, if you look at it, brand. I remember when I worked at Naked, one of the core principles was everything communicates, yeah. and I think that's exactly what you're talking about. So, if I look at a product, the way that it's made, the way that it's packaged, if I call the cent- call center, the way that they speak to me, this is actually all brand. Yeah because everything does communicate. And so if you look at it through that lens, the potential of the work that we can do and the impact that we can have is actually quite enormous. I might just ask you a quick rapid fire little series of of questions. Who's been your best client and why? What makes for a good client is probably a less uh, uh, contentious question to ask. Yeah, I think it's not just on the client, but on the agency. But I really love 
working with clients who bring you into the fold. You know, like I like working from their offices. I like getting Mm. to know their business. I like um, getting to know them. So it feels like you can just have conversations and constant conversations about the challenges they're having or, um, you know, the opportunities that are there. What's been some of the favourite work you have done and what are some of the things you're currently working on? So this is my first networked agency, I guess, at this level. And people talk about being connected internationally but it it we really are connected here at leos we've got a thing called our global product committee where people yeah, submit GPC, work yeah, yeah gpc all of the chief creative officers and i guess a selection number of ecds come together and they judge the work but it's not judging it really feels like a family mm. um and we look at how we can make the work better. Yeah. And so you get a good sense of the work internationally as well as locally. But one of the things that I've noticed um, as a theme at the moment is almost like we're, we're focused on the follow-up campaigns. You know, like you can have the big hit, but sometimes what's next can, can it, it's the important bit. Yeah, it yeah, can yeah. unravel people, it can trip them up. And I think, I think we're good at the follow-up as well. So, mm. you know, we're looking at what's what's next for Suncorp and resilience. Sure. You know, we're looking at what's next for Destination New South Wales and Feel New and how we can yeah, help yeah. the economy of a whole state. Mm. You know, what's next for the beloved Quokka, you know, yeah, and yeah, HBF yeah. or... Um, or oh, Bundy Mixer, which was another favourite um, that, that's come yeah. out recently. You know, what's next for that? So I think... What I love is the quality over such a wide range of clients. Mm. Um, I think I'm spoilt in that I get to dabble and not dabble, but I get to be involved in all of our clients. It feels like a real privilege. We won the NGV Rig Prize last year around a very creative social experiment for Lifeblood. Um, And so it's like, what's next for Lifeblood? But also um, Publicis has... um, has kicked off an initiative called Working with Cancer. Um, and as someone who was who was touched by this, you know, just late last year, it's it's something I feel really passionate about because the organisation is incredible around its support of people who are going through um, experiencing cancer in any way. But it's it's like what – so we're all rallying behind ideas around what could we do um, to, to make, make that experience for people better. In terms of the creative output and your way of um, sparking those Mm. insights and and platforms for those creative teams to go off and generate Mm. wonderful thoughts, how do you influence that? I think the key is integration with the creatives. So I love working with Andy, our ECD. He's freaking brilliant. And Mm. if I'm stuck or I'll always run past what I'm thinking and he always makes it sharper. You know, he's a very strategically minded creative. In fact, I think most of our creatives are. And it makes for a very satisfying process because yeah. you're all it feels like you're just sharpening this sense that the creatives invite you in they want and they want to know your opinion on how the work can be better i always like to know what people are watching or yes. you know reading or yes. listening to what, what what are some of the things that are really inspiring you at the moment that aren't any way related to in any way related yep. to advertising so um i use music a lot to manage energy which sure. sounds stalky but i think energy management is mm-hmm. like 
just as important as time management. So I listen to music a lot. So whether it's like No Name um, or Disclosure or like there's a a broad remit or a broad gamut of music. In terms of reading, um, I've really gotten back into Nick Cave's The Red Hand Files, the blog that he has. Mm -hmm. I love advice columns. I think there's something (laughs) like... voyeuristically but also I don't know you kind of connect he's he's such a beautiful writer Um, I'm reading a book called A Scar Is Also Skin by Ben McKelvey Um, he's an Australian author he's a friend the it's it's an incredible story. A Scar Is Also Skin. Yeah Yeah. he in his early 20s he had a stroke and a heart attack he's a very fit healthy guy yeah Um, and it goes through his journey um, yeah, and it's it's a it's a great rating. what a great title for a book. A scar oh. is also skin, and there's something really impactful. In it. Like it is, it hits you, hey? and it's an acknowledgement of yeah. you know what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. The totally. stoicism, the all totally. of those themes. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I might have to check that one out. Oh, please do. Well. Yeah, I'd highly recommend. Um, and then like I I really like Japanese reality tv uh so yeah, yeah. I, i've gotten that's in, fun <laughs> it's, it's like candy yeah, yeah but it also yeah. feels kind of cultural i don't yeah, know for sure yeah for sure this is the last quote i promise <laughs> i'm being a bit of a nerd you're going to just be quoting Leo so i'm going to be quoting day. for the rest of the yeah. day leo burnett says and i'll leave this as my last quote before i ask you your summary of your philosophy and then your bite of wisdom But Leo's had a bite of wisdom that I always thought was absolutely beautiful. When you reach for the stars, you may not quite get one, but you won't come up with a handful of mud. Does that quote resonate with you? You know, Western Sydney, reaching for the stars. I wouldn't say it's too bad an area, to be honest. I mean, Maryland's is pretty posh. Oh, totally. <laughs> but there's something beautiful about the challenger and the battler. You, you think about Western Sydney as battlers and they're reaching for the stars and a lot of entrepreneurs come from Western Sydney for that yeah. reason. I think within it all, I do have a high expectation of myself, mm. you know, and and maybe it's a stoic. It's like it's a bit dark. You can go mm. at any time, so you might as well like sure, give it a yeah. really good crack. Yeah. Um, that probably would, yeah. would potentially be, yeah. be a guiding principle. A guiding principle. Yeah. You don't know when the opportunity will come and, but also when it will go. So you've got to harness it and make the most of it. And I think mm. it's almost like it's a thing we should do. Like we've got limited time. Like we're so lucky to be in the positions that we're in. Like why not gun for it? Yeah. Why not go for it? Such and I advice. think I think that's a theme of my my career has been like I've done some wild things because I've thought well why not who Mm. else is going to do it like and it might as well be part of my story um, which I really want to look back upon and and feel really good about at some point Um, or have my kids feel good that they had this you know mum who went and and did these things Um, so yeah I think that's that's probably a, a really strong thing that has led me Put your writer's cap on. How do you summarise that into t- no more than 11 <laughs> words? <laughs> I will have to get back to you on that. I don't know. Life short, go for it. Oh, I love know. it. Life short, go for it. That's a cracker. Mm. All right. Well, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. I'm going to hang around here and mm. and, and work from these wonderful offices. Thank you so much. Oh, thank really you. appreciate your time. It's been great. I'll see you around the hallways, I'm sure. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Awesome. Hey, that was fantastic. Really? Yeah, really, really good. Thank you so much. Was there anything you wanted to cover before I hit? Um, no, I'm surprised you didn't go into the romantics. Oh, yes. Do 
If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me. And I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening. And until next episode, cheers. Cheers.